if you would uh, turn with me to page 799 of our Pew Bible, and we're going to read our text together this morning. Before we do that, let me pray. Lord, we come to you this morning hungry and thirsty from a word from you. You are the bread of life. You are the way and the truth and the life. God, we love you. We are grateful that you are here with us. Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear you. Open our eyes to see you. Soften our hearts to receive a word from you today. Lord, we want to come to this space and leave change because we have encountered you, our risen and living Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our text this morning is from Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If you would stand with me and read from your Bible or the words up on the screen. Jesus said this, If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen, even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I'm just going to set these items here for a minute. We're going to get to them shortly. But first, we just need to get our bearings, I think, a little bit with what we just read, right? Sometimes Jesus says some things. They're a little bit hard to hear, right? I don't know if any of you felt that when you read this, these words of Jesus this morning. When I read that this was the text this morning, I, I just heard these, this phrase, we need to talk, right? You've heard that phrase before and you know that feeling, that pit you get in your stomach when you hear it, or maybe that pit you get in your stomach when you need to say those words to somebody else. I thought, oh good, it's the we need to talk text that we get to talk about this morning. But we're in a series called The Word of the Great King. And we're talking about what it would mean to give Jesus authority in our lives, not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord. How might we live lives shaped by the good news that Jesus is King and that his kingdom is near? And the words that we just read that Jesus spoke this morning ask us to consider the possibility that being part of his kingdom means giving one another permission to speak a word into our lives. And I know that these are not particularly easy words to hear. It's not easy for somebody to get in our business. It's not even easy to hear somebody tell you that you have spinach in your teeth. 
let alone potentially speak a word to you about your sin. And I know also that these words have been used to justify harsh or even harmful conversations among the family of God, that they've been used to justify the abuse of power. I felt, I still feel, a little nervous looking at these words together this morning, particularly because we're at a time in our culture when we've practically weaponized confrontation. Many of us often feel like we are walking through a verbal minefield. See, we have a tendency within our culture right now to speak pretty harshly to one another, to even cancel someone if they say something we don't agree with, or we feel offended in some way, we probably all can conjure up right now images we have for media or our email inbox or a conversation with a friend or a family member or a stranger that could come to mind right now that represents this cancel culture. And yet some of this movement to speak up and speak out has come because things that should have been brought to the light were instead swept under the rug. Something that should have been said, we all thought it's not our problem, and so it went unchecked. So on one hand, we have this culture that is quick to cancel, and on the other, we have a culture that seems to say, you do you, we are, I am not my brother's keeper. And in the face of disagreement, or often just a conversation, we're not sure what to say, and we're not sure how to say it. And into all of this, into our moment right now, Jesus speaks to us a word this morning. And I do hope you'll hang in with me through this text, because I think and believe and trust that the word that Jesus offers us is a word of freedom, of hope, and grace. That his words that he spoke first to his disciples and now speaks to us are not given to fan the flame of confrontation, but to draw us near towards God and towards one another. As we look at Jesus' words together this morning, I want to talk about three things. What, how, and why. What do these words mean? What is Jesus saying? How might we follow them? How might we live them out? And why would we choose this way of life? Why might we trust these instructions from our Lord and Savior? So starting with what do these words mean? I want to go back and take a look at a closer look at our verses, but really to understand verses 15 through 20 well, we need to look at the whole of chapter 18 because Jesus' words, our verses this morning, are tucked into a larger conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. So we can open up. I'd encourage you guys this week to read all of chapter 18, but we're going to look at it right now. You can open back up your Bible, and I have a little bit of an outline here. So the conversation that Jesus is having that takes place through all of chapter 18 starts in verse 1. And it begins with this question. One of his disciples says, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in response, Jesus scoops up a child that's close by and says, whoever changes, the word is literally convert, 
Whoever converts and becomes like a child and humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about the importance of welcoming and receiving this child. He goes on in verses 6 to 9 to speak about the seriousness of sin, to give a word of caution about causing another to stumble, a word of caution about sin in our own life. Some of you might be familiar of the saying when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, be better to take it out. He offers a word of caution about the seriousness of sin. Then he goes on to tell a parable about the heart of a shepherd, a shepherd who cares for a hundred sheep and would leave the 99 to go seek after the one who is lost. And he says, my father's will is not that one would not be lost. He talks about having the heart of a shepherd who would go out and seek the one who is lost. In that context, we read our verses 15 through 20, sort of family business. How might we respond to one another? Jesus here, or Peter hears these words and asks Jesus, well, Jesus, how many times am I to forgive my brother or sister when they sin against me? Seven times. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 77 times. And then he goes on to tell another parable about the unmerciful servant, this man who owes a great debt to a king. The king forgives this great debt and then turns around and does not extend that same forgiveness of debt to his friend. So this is the context that our verses, this is the conversation that our verses are tucked into this morning. So I want to take a look again at the first part of our verses, this time from a different translation, the NIV. And in this translation, Jesus says this, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. I want to talk about this translation for a minute. I think it's helpful in a few ways that matter. The opening word is Adelphos. Our our Pew Bible translated it as a member of the church. Here we see brother and sister. The word Adelphos is the word for a fellow believer, united by the bond of affection, united by the shared faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Why this matters is because we need to remember that this conversation that Jesus is instructing us to have is not with a stranger. It's with a family member, which makes us think about, we talk a lot at UPC about being the family of God. And part of this challenges us to live into that. We should have stickiness with one another. We're not strangers in the pews. We're not strangers as members of the family of God. We are brothers and we are sisters. But as we look at this instruction of Jesus, It's important that we think about our posture, that the conversation we're going to have is with a brother or sister who we care about, who is part of our family. Now, Jesus goes on to say, if that brother or sister sins. Now, again, our Pew translation says sins against you, if that brother or sister sins against you. The NIV just says, if that person sins. 
Some translations add that phrase, against you. Others, like the NIV, do not. The reason that some add against you is because of the proximity and the interaction with Peter, where Peter specifically asks, if my, well, what do I do if my brother sins against me? Others, so some translations read back against you. Others don't have it because they connect it more to the preceding verses. I think both translations make sense. I think there's wisdom in Jesus's words here about how to handle disagreement in general, how to handle personal offense, what to do when I sin because my sin is going to impact you. But again, because I think that this message has sometimes given us justification to go have a conversation with our brother and sister, I think it's important to realize and remember and pay attention to the fact that the emphasis here is not about the wrong done to the person, but about the spiritual danger of your brother or sister. The goal of this encounter is not to win an argument, but to win the heart of your brother or sister for Jesus. Jesus' concern in this conversation is not the person that was offended, not the person that was wronged, Jesus' concern is for the heart of the brother and the sister. The concern for the relationship with God and the relationship with one another. The hope for this encounter is restoration. The goal is not to win an argument, but to win the heart of your brother or sister for Jesus and to not lose your heart in the process. The goal of this interaction is not to be right but to restore relationship with God and with one another. And this is probably about the time where it would be helpful for us to consider what it might be like to be on the receiving end of these words in this conversation and not just the one giving it. I realized as I was first working with this text that I tended to put myself in the position of the one that needed to have the conversation. And I think it's good for us to consider, what would it be like to be the one receiving the conversation? So taking, what is is this saying? What do these words mean? Taking Jesus' teaching as a whole, this is what we hear. With the humility of a child, with the heart of a shepherd that would not lose one, with a concern for the seriousness of sin, and with gratitude for the great debt we have been forgiven. With this posture, we speak a word of truth to our brother or sister that they might be won by the grace of God. Within this whole context, the word from a brother or sister is a kindness to us. Jesus is teaching us something very countercultural here. He is teaching us that conviction of sin is a gift and a grace. And that the family of God should be the safest place for this to happen. This is incredibly countercultural, and I know that this permission to speak into one another's lives has been abused, but it has also saved me. And I would imagine that it has saved you. Over the years, I have had patient and kind brothers and sisters take me by the hand speak a word of truth and ultimately conviction to me and walk with me towards the cross. 
As we seek to live under the authority of Jesus, he teaches us here that following him will include being open to receiving and learning from possibly unpleasant but truthful words from our brothers and sisters about our sin. And that following Jesus may mean coming alongside our brother or sister, not to win an argument, but to win them to and with the grace of Jesus. So how do we do this? If this is what Jesus is encouraging us to do, how do we do this? And again, you know that the how matters. It isn't easy. Like when I have spinach in my teeth, how you tell me that is going to matter. So I want to offer three ways that we might handle this. A blow dart, a broom, and a towel. We're going to start with this guy. So an Atlantic article by Jonathan Haidt looking at what he calls the fragmentation of society, particularly due to the impact of social media, said this. A mean tweet doesn't kill anyone. It's an attempt to shame or to punish someone publicly while broadcasting one's own virtue, brilliance, or tribal loyalties. It's more a dart than a bullet, causing pain but no fatalities. Even so, from 2009 to 2012, Facebook and Twitter passed out roughly one billion dart guns globally, and we have been shooting one another ever since. This is not just a diss on social media. It speaks more to the way that we often communicate with one another and how we have weaponized confrontation. My son knew what this was as soon as he saw it. He was very excited that I had gotten one of these. This is a blow dart shooter. See, I can stand, oh, wrong end. I can stand far back and I can just send stings your way. I don't have to get close to you. I don't have to have a conversation with you. I don't have to look you in the eye. I don't have to see the impact of my words. I can just stand back and send out zingers. When we shoot darts at one another from afar, it damages everyone involved. It's not a good or helpful way to communicate. We know this. And we also feel and fear the sting of this type of critique. The impact of this is that we are disincented to move towards one another and we walk around guarded with our walls up and distant. We're hurting but alone. This style of communication perpetuates a culture that attacks and defends. This is not how Jesus is calling us to treat one another or converse with one another. Remember, the goal of Jesus' teaching is not to win the argument, but to win the heart, to win the soul of our brother and sister, and to not lose ours in the process. So how about a broom? We can all pause for a moment and think of an example of something that was swept under the rug that should have instead been brought to light. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote an incredible book called Life Together. And in that he says, sin wants to remain unknown. 
it shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. And we all know too well the impact that this poison can have on others. He goes on to say, in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. That last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. In confession occurs the breakthrough to the cross. Our brother, our sister is won over by grace. Sweeping sin under the rug is not an act of love. Love might very well call us to speak a word of truth, to bring sin into the light, and then walk with our brother or sister that we might both kneel before the foot of the cross. See, the danger of cancel culture of blow dart shooters is that it makes no space for mistake for repentance, for restoration. It isolates us. It pushes us away from one another. It causes us to distrust one another's words and intentions. The danger of the you-do-you culture of sweeping things under the rug is that it offers no word of hope, no antidote to the poison of sin. The scandal of the cross, the gospel that we believe in, is as Tim Keller phrases it, that I am more sinful than I could ever dare imagine, and I am more loved and accepted than I could ever dare hope. This is true of me. This is true of you. This is true of us. And the work of the family of God is to live this out and proclaim this gospel and to remind one another of this scandal of grace. So again, how do we do this? How do we have these conversations? With tenderness, with love, with lots of prayer, with discernment, with our eye on the true prize, not to win the argument or prove ourselves right, but to woo back our brother or sister to grace and the salvation of Jesus Christ, with caution that we are not applying grace to ourselves and the law to others, with repentant and open hearts, open to someone pointing out the log in our own eye, and by following Jesus' example of picking up the towel. Before he was crucified for our sin, Jesus took a towel and a wash basin, and he washed the feet of his disciples, including the one who would go on to betray him. And Jesus himself said that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus's words throughout chapter 18, this whole conversation, give us a few ideas of what this posture of the towel might look like practically. It begins and probably ends, and is probably throughout the whole conversation, but begins with a posture of humility. We saw that in the opening words of chapter 18, these words of Jesus, that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who becomes like a child. We learn a lot from kids about how to receive a word of correction and trust the intentions of the giver. Think about how often kids receive correction or instruction. A lot. 
And yet somewhere along the way, we feel like we've outgrown this. We don't need or welcome that sort of input in our life anymore. And yet here Jesus says, unless you change, unless you convert and become like a child. We have a saying in our family that we want to speak only what is kind, true, and necessary. Right? Some things are true, but they are not necessary to say. Some things might be true and necessary to say, but how you're saying them may not be that kind. So if you're in my house for much time, you will probably hear me say to one of my kids at some point, was that kind, true, and necessary? And they always amaze me by their willingness to soften their heart towards that question. Might take them a minute, but they soften their heart towards that question. They, re- they honestly repent, convert, turn around, change directions. I'm amazed by this, particularly in the moments where they very appropriately turn the question back on me and say, Mom, was that kind, true, and necessary? And it takes me more than a second or two to soften my heart and to respond to their very true words of truth-telling and conviction. See, picking up the towel is about a posture of humility as both the giver and the receiver in the conversation. People who have picked up a towel in my life usually use words like, I wonder if... I've noticed that. Have you thought about? Now I know your intention might have been, but the impact on me was. There is a kindness, a curiosity, and a humility in their approach that helps me let down my guard, soften my heart, not worry about winning the argument, so that I might be one to Christ. Jesus also gives some specific instructions within his teaching to the disciples to work with the smallest group, right? We tread carefully, gently in this conversation, not to bring shame. Our goal is to protect the dignity of each individual, to protect the heart of both the giver and receiver. So Jesus says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So we begin not with gossip or shooting a dart or sweeping it under the rug, but we begin with a one-on-one eye-to-eye conversation. And as we seek to continue to draw a person towards Christ and be drawn with them towards the Lord, we may need to bring in a trusted friend. I think not so much as a witness in a court case to help us win our side, but as a fellow brother or sister, a mediator to help woo us to the Lord. And then Jesus teaches to address this as a church family. Because the hope is that the church is simply a community of people who are all responding to the good news of Jesus Christ. 
We are all brothers and sisters who are recipients of the grace and mercy of Jesus. And we remember in Jesus' words that the Gentiles and tax collectors were among those who Jesus spent time with and wooed to the gospel. So why? Why might we trust the wisdom of Jesus and let his words have authority in our lives? Why might we give one another permission to speak into our lives? Many of us are part of what Professor Jonathan Haidt called in that Atlantic article, part of the exhausted majority who are tired of fighting. We are tired of fighting with ourselves and we are tired of fighting with one another. And Jesus offers us an alternative to that. A family that cares enough about one another to point out when we have spinach in our teeth, cares enough to be concerned about our spiritual health. Family members that will have an eye-to-eye conversation in love about disagreement and not shoot darts at one another. Brothers and sisters who love us too much to watch our lives and relationships be wrecked by the poison of sin. And so will, in humility, help us bring our sin into the light, have a conversation about disagreement, have a conversation about personal offense, and walk with us to the cross. The first people to hear these words from Jesus lived and loved in a way that spread the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the world. While their impact for the kingdom of God was great, their scale was small. It was life connected to life over time, spreading the fragrance of Christ. And this happened not because of what they had in common or what they got right, but because of their mutual discovery and surrender to a king who saved their life and taught them a new way to live. They were changed by the gospel, and they were changed by the gospel lived out in one another. I know that I want to be part of a community, of a family who lives and loves in this way. These words that Jesus offers us are not words to fan the flames of cancel culture or weaponize confrontation, but they are also words that call us to care too much to leave conflict unaddressed or the poison of sin unexposed. These are words of freedom, humility, and grace. They are motivated by love, and they are in the language of a kingdom built on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are words from a kingdom where we are no longer bound to the weight of sin and death, where we are no longer paralyzed by fear of exposure or at odds with one another in factions and tribes. In a culture that is increasingly tribal, how we live and how we love has the possibility of loosening the work of God in the world and binding the work of Satan This is the call and the work of the family of God. And like the first followers of Jesus, I imagine that this will and should happen through life connected to life over time, spreading the fragrance of Christ. As we hear these words from Jesus this morning, 
I can think of no better place to come right now than to the communion table. Here at the table of communion, we are reminded of and equipped for this type of kingdom work. Here, we admit our need for salvation and we receive the antidote for the poison of sin, the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us. At the table of communion, we embrace the humility and the power to be reconciled with God and through Christ to be reconciled with one another. So as we prepare to come to the table, we join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you are king and that your kingdom is near. And thank you that your kingdom is full of life and hope and truth and light. Thank you that we can come to you just as you are, as we are. Thank you that you invite us to take the hand of our brother, of our sister, and walk together to you. Thank you that in your life, death and resurrection is the power to free us from our sin, the grace and love that wraps around us, the humility and strength and courage we need to be reconciled to one another. May your words change us. May they change how we live and how we love. Thank you for your gifts to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.